well. Um, so great. So I'm, like I said, I'm really excited about having this conversation with you. And I don't know if you remember the story I shared over email about how I found your work. Uh, refreshing, not, not fully. Okay. So I was um, coming up with a new tagline for this show, Buddhist Geeks, and uh, it had been dormant for the last year. And actually, I was going through a process of, of actually thinking I was never going to do it again during that year. Um, and once the show came back and I started doing it again, you know, wanted to have a, a clear frame for what, you know, what was different this time around. And what I came up with was um, Dharma in the Age of the Network. Oh, wow. Okay. And so the next thought I had was, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I started looking for and wanting to find something on a generalized philosophy of networks. Oh, okay. Um, to see if that existed. And your your name came right to the top of the list. And and your book, Networkologies, did, um, which was mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. exciting to see. And then I went onto your page from there after purchasing the book. And suddenly I saw all these articles on Buddhism mm -hmm. and started reading through some of those. And I thought, holy shit. I was like, I have to talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I, I should send you the book that I'm finishing up right now for Zero, which is the follow-up. And it looks like it's going to be split into two volumes. And it, it, it has so much Buddhism in there. So I, I think it'd be up your alley. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, when, whenever that becomes feasible, I'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. that'll be part two of our conversation. Or uh, you can help me understand what Buddhist Geeks is. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that part, but I can do what I can to, you know, be entertaining. Well, you know, I mean, I say that half jokingly because the half that's not a joke is the part about the networks. Because mm, mm. um, I've had this intuition for a while. I mean, for at least a number, you know, three or four years that, you know, networks were really important. And not just as a metaphor, but, but as something that's actually, you know, increasingly like the reality of how things are connected. Sure. But I don't, you know, I'm still in a very, very much in an exploration about what that means. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so excited to talk to people that have been exploring that in more depth and for longer periods of time. Oh, you've come to the right place then. You know, I'm, I'm working like, for example, you know, I spent a summer researching at the Santa Fe Institute, which is where complex system science sort of came up. And that's what chaos theory turned into when it grew up, basically. But I mean, the science and mathematics of networks is... You know, I'm kind of steeped in that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think the link to Buddhism, I mean, I was studying that stuff first. It was actually studying how artificial neural networks function. And I came upon some Tibetan Buddhist scriptures and I was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm studying. And that led to years worth of frantic diving into everything I could lay my hands on and field work in Nepal. And, you know. But, I mean, the basic link is, I think, really straightforward. Uh, you know, Pratitya Samutpada. I don't think my Sanskrit accent is fantastic, but, you know, uh, I mean, but I mean, that's interconnectedness, right? And, it, you know, you could translate it lots of different ways, dependent origination, interconnectedness. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh goes for interbeing. Uh, but, you know, Robert Thurman calls it relativity. And that's, I mean, and he has these sort of interesting reasonings for why you would translate it that way. But this is one of the single most central notions in Buddhism, and it goes back to the very beginning of Buddhist thought. In all of its transformations, you have interconnectedness. And the way it intertwines with notions of no-self and emptiness, right? So on Atman and Shunyata, right? 
it's the it's the mirror image in some sense, but it's also kind of turned inside out, right? So nothing is whole. Everything's hollow because everything's actually interconnected. And those two, I, I mean, Nagarjuna even says, you know, very straightforward. Those two notions are essentially the same thing. And that is what a network perspective on the world shows. And that's as soon as I saw some of these ideas of Buddhism, I was like, oh, my God, this is where I've got to go. Okay. That's that's really interesting. And I mean, the first time I ran across that view was um, studying Buddhism in college and running across the, the Madhyamaka um, perspective. The Garjana is the, the one who's they pin that on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure sure okay so okay obviously we gotta we gotta we gotta jump into that i mean and and touch touch on that in a, in a deep way oh yeah um that would be great i mean i happen to, to be you know like madhyamaka for me is always a path to the more yogachara end of things right so you know i i think madhyamaka only gets you so far in a certain sense um, you have to end up where, you know, and this is that debate that you see through the history of Mahayana Buddhism, certainly of, you know, are, you know, is the ultimate truth emptiness or is it the union of emptiness and appearance? And someone like Mipam in the Tibetan tradition says, well, the, you know, the great ultimate is the union of em emptiness and appearance. And that's where I find myself that that speaks to me the most. Okay. Interesting. So one thing I'll, I'll be curious to talk to you about is or good to go deeper in is when you say you find yourself there, in what sense do you find yourself there? And I'm not saying you have to answer that question now, but <laughs> I mean, do you mean intellectually, personally? Like what, what do you mean? Exactly. Both. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like I would say that that's where I feel at home. That's where I feel uh, there's something that speaks to me. Let, let's put it that way. Okay, cool. I, I may interrogate you a little if that's okay. <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, right. The, the whole notion of, yeah, I'm thinking of like the Lotus Sutra where you have the, the Sutra of innumerable meanings and the notion that, you know, there are innumerable dharmas for innumerable, you know, people in their various karmic situations. And, you know, that's the one that speaks to me. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to talk more about that. And also, I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about what it was like when you're doing field work in Nepal and diving deep into studying all this stuff. You know, were there mm -hmm. people, particular people you were studying with, or were you like locked in some sort of monastery library somewhere? You know, what was it like? No, no. I mean, like, I mean, have you been to Kathmandu at all? To you know, I have not. Oh, okay. I mean, to study Tibetan Buddhism, I would say right. People tend to go to either like Dharamsala, right, or Kathmandu because of the emigrant communities. And Dharamsala is so small, you know. So like, a lot of people end up in Kathmandu. And so I was at Rangjung Yeshe and I did a summer there, but, you know, they have this, you know, Buddhist studies class. And, you know, like I, I was already teaching Buddhism at my college, but I was like, you know, what? I don't know anything about it in practice. I'm a Western trained philosopher and I was teaching it from a sort of text only perspective and in a very experimental kind of way. Right. Our, our college had nothing of the sort. And they were like, OK, we have nothing in Asian philosophy. Can you do this? And I was like. I would love to do this. Uh, but that's where I was like, okay, I have to go to Nepal. I have to see how this is practiced on the ground. So I took this pretty, you know, standard intro course, but half of it was taught by Western academics. The other half was taught by monks. And that was just a cultural immersion experience. Uh, but also in the after your afternoons were free. And so I saw on the message board some monks from a nearby monastery who were learning English put up these little signs that were saying, you know, looking for English conversation partner. And I was like, oh my God. And so that led to two summers 
basically like every day hanging out for several hours with these young monks, usually 20 to 20 to 30 to 40. Some of them were 40, maybe. But these young monks that were all in this school, International Buddhist Academy, learning English. And all they wanted to do was drink tea, hang out with the doggies in the patio and talk all day, every day about Buddhism. So I was just like, tell me more. Tell me more. You know, and so like it was perfect that, you know, they'd play basketball. I'd hang out on the sidelines and watch them and be like, so how do you become a monk? And just it was I, I can't imagine, you know, that sort of experience like. I, I couldn't pay for that, you know? Yeah, and a lot of it was the stuff that you just don't get from the books. And even if you're, you know, hearing a Rinpoche speak, if you're hearing these great masters speak, it's so different from, you know, these monks who see themselves as, like, everyday monks, right? And they're just like, you know, what do you do all day? Are you on Facebook? What's your iPad like? You know, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Nice. You're, you're getting to know them on a, on a more kind of personal level. Oh, yeah. You know, like some of them became very close friends I'm still in touch with. And, you know, so like learning how it's just a lived everyday reality was, you know, I think the part that like I was trying so hard to find out, like, what is the educational system like on a daily basis? And there's actually, you know, there's that book being a Buddhist nun. There's Jeffrey Samuels book. I think it's Jeffrey Samuels, who is the Buddhist monk for a while and came back and wrote was the sound of two hands clapping about his experience. But there's very little about sort of the practical, like what it's like to go through the educational system. Yes. And so that was where I was just like, tell me what it was like, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. So, so there's, yeah. So there's the, I guess, conversation about, yeah, relationship between networks and Buddhism and how you stumbled into that. And then Mm -hmm. of course, what I found so interesting reading networkologies was, was your, attempt to describe what networks are mm. independently of any particular kind of instantiation of those networks, whether it's, you know, mm-hmm. the brain or the internet or, you know, whatever the network is, you're talking about networks in a more general sense. I'd love to, sure. you know, hear you, hear you kind of riff on that a bit and, and maybe kind of describe uh you're thinking on that. Sure. I, I mean, like if you talk to a mathematician, right, there's a whole branch of math called graph theory. And that has been, you know, developed into, say, the science of networks. But basically, you know, it's you've got your nodes, right, which are called, um, you know, your edges. And then you've got links, which are called vertices. You know, they kind of don't talk too much in general about the fact that that's always against the background. But they have all of this very complex mathematics that they've developed around these things. But, you know, I, I think a lot of times the mathematicians aren't really taking it to the sort of concrete issues that, say, interest the scientists. So the scientists are applying a lot of this mathematics. They go back and forth. But, you know, so on the one hand, a network is a diagram, right? And for a mathematician, it's a picture. It's got edges and it's got vertices and that's it. And, you know, but then you talk to the scientists and they're just like, oh, well, you know, we've got these organisms in a pond. And so we came up with a network diagram of their interactions. So for them, they've got sort of the abstract diagram, but then they're describing these concrete things in a pond. And both of them, they refer to as networks, right? One is the network that's the diagram. The other is the network that is the stuff in the pond and how these things actually work. And so one thing I was asking myself is, well, if the network is how they talk about both the diagram and the stuff that's diagrammed, then we've got a pretty classic non-dual setup if we're talking, you know, how, how this would be talked about in Buddhism, right? And it also deconstructs all these binaries that you see in Western philosophy between like the signifier and the signified, the represented and the representor, 
right? Mind and matter. The, all the binaries start coming down when you start thinking in terms of networks because there's nothing binary about a network, nothing dualist. It's, you know, ones and many's very often, right? You open up a node in a network and there's almost always, at least in the real world, more nodes, more networks. So it's got this sort of fractal aspect that you see in Buddhism constantly. Yes, I, I'd love to to dive into that a little more because my first exposure to the idea of, of fractals and particularly consciousness being experienced in a fractal-like way was from my first meditation teacher who described mm, mm. the progress of insight, uh, which is a, a map of Vipassana meditation as a fractal. And then as I trained in it over several years, I started to see, you know, it started to fractal me <laughs> and I started to see, oh, like yeah, there are these yeah. recurrent recursive patterns. And yet there's also something, mm. uh, there's some sort of deepening process at the same time. It's not the same thing every time, but it also is the same thing every time. Yeah. So that's, that's, I wonder, I guess I have a question about the relationship mm. between phenomena you know the phenomenology of meditation and these descriptions of networks because mm. uh, and, th and this leads to i guess another question which is about um i don't know that you use this term but um the term i ran across was panpsychism you know, the idea that something about the the way that things are connected that i don't know how you would put it but this is kind of my reading of you it's like that that that, that the, it's it's more about the way things are connected that seems to seems to determine its experience of being conscious. You know, things that are sufficiently networked are conscious. Yeah, I mean, panpsychism is something I talk about in, I think it's the second part of the book. Uh, I'd have to look at the exact sections, but it's, it's a term I'm definitely, you know, as, as much as I don't like the fact that it sounds paranormal, right? People start thinking of like, you know, ghost hunters on like <laughs> TV or something. But the notion that everything feels Right. I think like most people say, oh, everything's conscious. That's kind of pushing it. Everything is mind. A lot of people still get a little weirded out by. But if you say everything feels and thinking and consciousness are just really complex forms of feeling. Right. Then you're like, well, OK, electrons seem to feel charges and that's why they move one way or the other. Molecules feel the bonds that hold them together and the forces that really they are those forms of feeling. If you start changing the way you use that word feeling a little bit, it's able to do a lot of work. And then you could be like, well, okay, then consciousness and matter are perhaps two different versions of the same thing. Consciousness is just what happens when really complicated matter feels itself from the inside. Mm. And that's what a brain is. And once you've got that, you've got a non-dual approach to experience. And the physical world and experience no longer have to be separated. And that's one of the fundamental approaches of not only Buddhist philosophy, but of all the Brahmanic traditions from which it grows. Nice. And, and, and would you say it's also not just the brain, but the whole embodied you know, organism and the, and the cognition that's distributed? You, you, know, you talk about the distributed nature of that intelligence, I think, at, at some point, too. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think there's any reason to think that, I mean, our bodies are just particularly complex types of networking. I mean, the brain is the most complex network that has ever been created. You know, that there's more connections in your brain than the stars of the known universe. So we think of the internet as complicated. The internet pales in regard to every individual brain that's carried in a, a human skull. And many other organisms like, you know, dolphins and whales and, you know, that have really complex brains. And so, yeah, I think, you know, we tend to think of thought and consciousness as something magical. You know, it's just how 
one of these very complex networks feels from the inside. Nice. And that, that links us back to the rest of the world. We're not divided off anymore. Yeah, I, I find interesting is the way that it sort of this network view sort of shows that everything is intertwined and interconnected, but it's it's so not two-dimensional in the way that a lot of you know mystical traditions and and spiritual practitioners can think. Like they think everything's connected, mm. everything's one, man. And but, but, mm. but I think the map I see, you know, floating through their mind is like, you know, kind of like a real simple two-dimensional, you know, yeah. <laughs> thing where it, No, a lot of times my students in the Buddhist studies class at Pratt, they'll be like, Oh, so they're saying everything is one. And I'm like, don't don't go there. Don't give me the cliche. You know, like, <laughs> yes, they're saying that in a sense. But what they mean by one is not what you're thinking it means. It's far more complicated. Yes. Yes. Because I imagine in a network, you've got some pieces that are more, uh, you know, well, you, okay, you talk about the, uh, the different types of networks, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit too, you know, centralizing, mm-hmm, centralizing, mm-hmm. distributing. Sure, sure. Um, because, you know, some some networks or some parts of networks within other networks are more shut off from oh, yeah. other parts of the network or they're actively trying to remake things around them in their image, mm, mm. you know, which, you know, it's a kind of oneness, but it's like the same kind of oneness that Adolf Hitler was, you know, interested in. Right, right, right. And, you know, and this is where I, 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 you know, it's interesting that you went to networks because I was thinking Buddhism there. Right. But you're, I mean, from a Buddhist perspective, all is mind, you, right. You could say all, and that's yoga shot up Buddhism. Right. But you could say all is mind. And this is where like my students are like, Oh, okay. So all is one and one is mind. I'm like, yeah, but you're forgetting the second part, but mind is empty. And if you don't have that part, it doesn't pull the rug out from the all is one in a way that I think Buddhism is always pulling the rug out in that sort of fractal recursion that you were talking about before. Yes. Right. You think you've grasped something. And as soon as you grasp it, that's not it. And to me, it's it's the moment of recognizing that's not it, where there is some sort of genuine contact with Mm. the nature of consciousness. Mm, mm. You know, that's that's you know, we could say like that, that every matter shares mm-hmm. in some sense, there's an intuitive grokking of that. Uh, yeah. I would claim. Well, it's interesting because right in the Buddhist tradition, it's usually that's not it. And in the Upanishads, you're going to, you see these two interesting formulations that the, the teachers and the Upanishads say to the students, right? And one of them is neti neti. You're not this, right? You're not that. And they go through all the different things that you're not, yes. but then they also do tatvam asi, right? Which is that you are. And so you have like, you're, it's both of them. You're everything, but you're also none of those things. And I think you need both of those sides to not get stuck. Love it. Yeah. I heard, I heard the same thing from my contemplative Hinduist teacher at Naropa, um, who you went to Naropa. I did. Yeah. And, and that oh, was one cool. of my favorite classes. Um, she, mm-hmm. I forget her exact story, uh, Sri, Sri Devi Bringi, but, uh, mm-hmm. Her father uh, was a student of, oh, I'm forgetting his name. He's this famous uh, Krishnamurti. Oh, Krishnamurti is amazing. Yeah. So her father was sort of, you know, they were all connected in the family. You know, he was like the family guru. Mm, and mm. so she, she talked about exactly that. The Advaita Vedanta, Neti Neti. Sure. And then the, uh, yeah. uh, what you just said, which was, which she associated with the ta- the tantric uh, aspect of Hinduism. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just speaking about Krishnamurti for a second, his book with David Bohm, oh my God, it's mind-blowingly good. Uh, the End of Time, it's so fantastic. You know, because here you have this, oh, you have this quantum physicist who is talking, like David Bohm basically advances a version of quantum physics that is non-dual. 
And so he hooks up with Krishnamurti. Mm. And I mean, what's interesting about the, the quantum physical aspect is that the data is the same, no matter how you interpret it, right? And you can still predict accurately, depending on if your assumptions are dualist or non-dual. But David Bohm is like, look, you could totally go non-dual with this. And when you do that, it makes sense of so much of the rest of the world. And that's where he hooks up with Krishnamurti. And so to hear this like hyper-mathematical, highly respected quantum physicist, I mean, I've looked at his math. It's solid math, you know? And like, no one doubts his credentials as a quantum physicist. And then he's talking to Krishnamurti, and they're pulling from the same perspective, coming from 100% different places. I mean, it's similar in some ways to Matthew Ricard's book with, I, I forget the Vietnamese quantum physicist that he, he works with, but it's, you know, sort of an updated version, but they're both fantastic books. Cool. Anything else you think we should uh, try and talk about? I already feel like we've we're, we've got enough for an hour and a half. Although we're speaking very fast and animatedly, so that, so maybe we might be able to compress more in. <laughs> this is great fun. Right. Well, yeah. No. I mean, like, I, I feel we've got a natural sort of chemistry to riff on stuff. I mean, my guess is we probably should, you know, extract uh, just a handful of points in case we ever do run out of steam. We can go to one of them. You know, like, oh, we want to hit this topic. We want to hit that topic, yes. you know. Well, I've got some I've got some good notes here um, for that. I could also share them with you if that's helpful. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, well, you can let me know how to do that. And I'm looking forward to uh, our, our deep dive. So, yeah, this is, this is going to be great. Yeah, 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 yeah. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.